0: head to airbnb.com slash host.
1: Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth
2: for you, and then let it go.
0: For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing, that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming. We turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today.
2: My guest today is Alua Arthur. Alua is a death doula and the founder of Going With Grace an end-of-life planning and death doula training organization. Alua has helped thousands of people through the end-of-life process. We sat down today to gently unpack death and explore what it means and looks like to plan for it. We discussed what a natural burial means, the differences between a good and ideal death, and how to hold grief and joy at the same time. Alua also talked about how she would like to die, And I guess you could say, I loved hearing about her wishes for the end. Let's get right to my chat with Alua. I'm really excited to have this conversation for so many reasons.
1: You know, myself as a doula for over a decade, working in all different facets of sexual reproductive health, helping people move through the transitions that happen when you live inside of a body. And I'm really curious, and would love for you to kind of dive into what is a death doula for people that don't have a frame of reference and who really only see doulas as individuals that help support people through sexual and reproductive health transitions. So much like the role where somebody is dueling somebody through birth and sexual health transitions, on the other side is death. And similarly, a death doula is a non-medical care and support for the dying person and the family through the process. We work in, with three different populations. I'll say when people are still healthy, when people don't yet know what it is that they're going to be dying of, is a great time to start planning for death. So with people that are healthy, we support them in completing comprehensive end of life plans, working through their fears of death, doing death meditations, working through death anxiety, et cetera. When people know what it is that they're going to be dying of, when they have an incurable illness of some sort, we help them create the most ideal death for themselves under the circumstances. So the most ideal death. That means that we're helping them create the bedside. That means we're helping them work through any emotional, relational issues. That means practical affairs, whatever their needs might be to have the most ideal death. And then after somebody dies, we help family members wrap up the affairs of their loved one's life. And you call yourself a recovering attorney. Yes. I want to <laughs> hear a little bit about this recovering component of your previous life as an attorney and, and how does that work of being an attorney connect or transfer into your work as a death doula? I spent the first decade of my professional working adult life practicing at Legal Aid. So I did nonprofit work for low-income communities. I started out in HIV-AIDS work, and then I moved to government benefits, and then domestic violence and sexual assault. So I was helping mostly female-identified folks get restraining orders and custody plans and divorces from abusive partners, et cetera. Which meant that I spent the first part of my professional life in battles of some sort. Like, you know, there was always two sides and we were trying to, somebody was trying to win, somebody had to be right. And even when we were trying to mediate or something of the sort, there was just a constant battle. It felt like I was at war. And I'm a lover, not a fighter. Like, it just, it was not within my spirit. I was working against a system that was not designed to, protect the people is was meant to support and it depressed me. I, I gained a very serious depression and, and it took a leave of absence. And during that leave of absence is when I found death work when I was in Cuba. But the recovering part of the lawyer is the part of me that still sometimes still thinks that we have to burn a system down and also that that is constantly looking at scenarios to try to figure out where the holes are to see how I can fix them or plug them up or something of the sort. That part helps really well with the death work. That works really, really well with supporting people through death because I can walk into a home and survey what's going on and say, okay, we're gonna have an issue with the mail once this person dies, we have to figure out you know, there's some tension in this relationship. You know, there's medications here we are going to have to figure out. Like I can issue spot is what it's called. But the other part, the part that wants to burn down the system that does not lend so well to the death care work. It's in my spirit for forever, but I just got to, you know, cloak it in a lot of love and compassion. <laughs> you know, thinking about burning down systems, I'd love to just live inside of this world of hospice work for a minute and really try to get some clarity around the difference between what you're doing as a death doula and what hospice frameworks or the hospice system provides. Where do you sit inside of that? So the way that I see it, we're an extension of each other. Hospice is tremendous to manage symptoms, and emotions, there's a great team of people that can come to support. There's the doctor, there's a caregiver, there's an LVN or some sort, there's a social worker, there's spiritual care, there could be art therapists. So there's a great med- a team that's built around supporting the medical and some of the psychosocial needs through hospice. Death doulas, I see as a certain extension of hospice. We're available 24 hours a day. We're an extra set of hands and eyes and ears for the hospice team. I often find myself growing close to the hospice team because we'll check in with each other with the permission of the client. So we're an extension of each other. In my perfect world, death doulas are hired by hospice so that we can be like a point person to support the hospice team when they come see the individual. Another challenge that we have in society, this is mostly because of Medicare, but the referrals to hospice aren't coming early enough, which means that sometimes I'll see a client long before they get a script for hospice, which means that I'm supporting them and trying to find one. Or sometimes I'm like, have you talked to your doctor yet about hospice? Or, you know, sometimes we can catch people a little further upstream than hospice can. The average length of stay on hospice is, the median is seven days. That's not much time. I can be working with somebody for a year.
0: head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation.
1: Can you clarify exactly what hospice is for those who might not even understand the concept? And I think when you brought forward the amount of days or the median number of days someone is connected or utilizing hospice services, it's, it's pretty short. And I think sometimes I think the cultural understanding of hospices were there for a long time. Can you speak a little bit to what hospice actually is? Gladly. So hospice is the theory of care. It's a theory of care that moves away from curative to quality of life. So we're moving away from quantity to quality. We're no longer trying to treat illness and disease. We're trying to ease symptoms. It's not a place necessarily. You can receive hospice care services at your home or the place where you're ill and receiving other services. So it's not a place that people go to die. Rather, it's a system that's in place to support people through the end of life, to increase quality of life.
2: A few moments ago,
1: you brought forward this idea of an ideal death. And I'm really curious what you mean by that. Is there such a thing as an ideal death? Is there such a thing as a good death? Because I think, you know, in the culture that we live in, death is primarily cluttered with negative connotations. And there isn't this idea of death optimization or creating frameworks to help death move in an idealistic way. In some ways, it feels a bit revolutionary to be like, what's your ideal death? Because people are like, what are you talking about? I don't want to die. And I'm like, I hear you, but you're going to. So how can we make it? Let's just find something that might work a little better for you. The good death is, to me, the ideal. Yet the good death is so cluttered. It's just really cluttered with social norms and expectations that are not available to all and so to me the good death is what we'd all love right the 80 90 100 years old in a bed that you own peaceful no pain you know at the end of maybe some disease and yet arms crossed over your chest and you just like flutter off to wherever you might going if at all not how most people die And so looking at the circumstances that we're currently in, what would be the most ideal for myself right now? I've started using the language good rather or ideal as opposed to good to reflect that, you know, given where the individual is in disease process or in life, it might not be good necessarily, but it could be the best that they could do, which means, you know, looking at their emotions and their relationships and what still needs reconciling and their practical affairs and pain management and all of that and helping them to achieve it. You use the word achieve when you were just explaining kind of how do we find our way to an ideal death? And when you are working as a death doula. Because we live in this society, this culture where achievement is so kind of built into everything that we do, Whether it's consciously or subconsciously, you know, I always found as a doula working with birth or, you know, miscarriage, abortion, you know, postpartum, you know, whatever I was working around, I really worked pretty rigorously to remove the context or remove the concept of achievement because I really felt that all of the processes that I was supporting were all normal physiological processes that should be devoid of competition or a feeling of um, completion, let's say. And so I'm really curious because you use the word, how do you kind of combat people's desire to also find a sense of excellence or performance in death without removing some of the beauty and pageantry of death? Like there are ceremony around it. There is, a piece of it that can be really beautiful and engaging and, and, and healing. But, but how do you kind of bridge that gap? I love this question so, 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 so much because I think about it a lot. I think one of the key differences is that given, okay, we, get the, we all get the death that we're going to get at some point and there is nobody on the other side saying A plus or B minus or, you know, whatever, this is the type of death you got, which is part of why shifting away uh, from the idea of the good death, right? So when thinking about it as good or bad, when placing some judgment on it, I think that gives, something, that gives people something unreachable to strive for. Yet when achieving a good, an ideal death, to me, it's like, okay, let me see if I can do the best that I can do for myself right now and for my family member or whatever else which I think allows people to do what they can to get to the place that they want to get when the death comes. Less I think about excellence and more about, let me do the, let me support as best as I can. This is, this is the goal, this is what we're striving for. As little pain as possible, as much peace as possible, as much surrender as possible, as much grace as possible. That's what we're trying to achieve, I'd say. Yeah, and when you use the word surrender, it it brings me, well, it gets me present, gets me into this exact second of this conversation where we are still making our way out of this pandemic. And then it also pulls me back to, you know, March of 2020 when for many of us it was the beginning of a arduous process of surrender of understanding that we are inside of something we have never experienced before that is really beckoning us towards death deepening our relationship with death by force and so i would love to know how did you metabolize the intensity of the past year. A lot of adapting, intentional adapting, like practicing and being in the process of adapting over and over and over and over again. Utilizing these skills that I preach And I'm trying to support other people in and being like, all right, now bring it inside. Looking at the circumstances as they were, trying to figure out what I could do within the circumstances, arriving in the new moment and moving from that space, grieving plenty. I grieved a ton consciously. I spent a lot of time on a little chase lounge by the window, looking at the magnolia trees, feeling the sun on my skin in fear and sadness and some loss of identity and trying to figure out this new, this new way of being for myself, this new way of doing my work, this new way for the world. I, I grieved. I grieved heavily. And I did so reluctantly, <laughs> as I think a lot of us did, but I grieved. And when you talk about grief, how do you see grief? Do you see it as something that is omnipresent, constant, a partner in this lived experience that we're all in, or is it something that's temporary or transient? I think it's a partner. You know, it's one of those that we're like locking arms with dancing like the Whiz down the yellow brick road. There's me, there's my grief, there's my love, there's my beauty, there's my joy, and we just like skip on down the road yeah, I think it's a it's part of the way that we life that sometimes we're not consciously aware of, but it shows up bigger at, at some points and small at other points, like really big let's say after a death or a breakup or the end of a marriage, a miscarriage and in some smaller ways, like when you some ways that are supposed to maybe be joyful like from you know, somebody who is not yet a mother to somebody who is. Or when you buy a new car, you grieve the old one in some ways that maybe we're not consciously aware of. But it's always there on some level. Every time we go through any change in identity, it's very present. I think that's a really beautiful, it's a beautiful point of connection because I think people tend to feel like grief has to be connected to something that is alive and I think if we can start to contact the fact that grief can show up in situations that don't have anything to do with anything that's living and breathing it's just transitions like near transitions exchanges can be you know catalysts for grief I think is an interesting way to help people metabolize grief on a macro level because I I think that that's something that really came forward with the pandemic and as you said you really sat with your grief in a much more present way i think and i'm curious if you agree you know i don't want to lose that contact with grief if 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 it was not there prior to the pandemic and it came i think a lot of people probably want to be like i want that To be over, and I want to move back towards something that makes more sense. I think that's a very kind of American notion, but I think for myself, I can only speak for myself, and I can kind of punt it over to you. I think you know, being first generation Nigerian American, you being from you know from from Ghana, I think we understand that like death, grief, birth, life—they all they're all right here. We don't need to. Over compartmentalize them, and the, and the, and the, the and that there will be moments where we get to be closer to these individual emotions, and in a way, I'm like I'm grateful for how last year brought us closer to grief because I feel like it brings us closer to our own humanity. Absolutely, I feel so human when I'm grieving. You know, I'm having just like the full spade of emotions. Another same. thing that I think was really understated is how we can hold both at the same time. Like, I can hold grief and joy effortlessly. It's part of the, being a Black body in this country. I'm constantly grieving. I'm also constantly joyful. Uh, through the pandemic, I noticed that a lot in myself. I'd have full dance parties and then be sobbing you know, a short while later. And sometimes the dance party would bring out and out the grief, you know? But, like, both are present. We can do, the, we can do both. I love the complexity of being human, period. And I love how that complexity shows up in how we access emotions like grief. It really does remind me how wonderfully, splendidly human I am. If I ever get any designs, I'm a superhero. I just need to... (laughs) Rare.
2: You know, and, and talking about complexity, I'm really curious what your
1: end of life plan looks like. Do you have one as you advise and support an issue spot, as you say, with your clients? How, what does your end of life plan look like? Yeah, I love talking about my end of life, which I know is probably kind of bizarre, but I love it. Okay, so what I'd really love is to be in a home that I've grown accustomed to, on a deck in a bed that I've grown accustomed to. Uh, I want some socks on my feet because I don't like them being cold. A blanket. I want to be naked otherwise. A blanket. I would love to see the sunset for the last time. I'd love to be looking at trees. I really enjoy the sound of wind moving through trees and leaves, so I'd love to hear that. Maybe some like little running water, like a creek or something of this sort. I want to see all oranges and pinks and blues. I want to watch the day die into the night. I'd love to have my loved ones around, but I don't think I want anybody touching me. I just want them around and, you know, talking amongst themselves. I understand that my dying is going to be a big event in their lives because I matter to them. But also I want them to experience it as an an extra extraordinary moment in an ordinary Way. I want them to just notice that I'm no longer breathing. And then I want them to clap. I want them to clap. I want them to say, well done, good job. Yeah, to me, that would be my most ideal death. It would also be a good one. But who knows, after all this work, I might go kicking and screaming. I might be like, no! <laughs> I might be the person <laughs> fighting and angry, and we'll see. We'll see, we'll see. Yeah, that's what I'd like. That's how I'd like to die. Uh, For everything afterward, you wanna hear about that? Cause I love that part too. Okay, yes, I would love, I would love to have a very brief home funeral where people can come by and touch on my body if they'd like, take my bracelets off my wrist. Cause I wear these, I wear a set of bracelets I got all the time. And, you know, just engage with my body for the last time. I want to stay at home for maybe like a day or two. And then I want to be wrapped in a hot pink and orange, raw silk shroud. And my body laid out someplace in like a wooded area with a bit of a clearing, strong with all these twinkle lights and these branches, which have all my jewelry on them, decorating the space. I want people to come and take the jewelry, put it on. I want like pictures of my travels all over the place, pictures of my friends. And then I want like a little service, nothing too fancy. We might have to throw an Amazing Grace in there because my mom. But other than that, I want them to take my body away as the sun sets I want the base to drop, along with fireworks happening at the same time, pyrotechnics. <laughs> Yes, bass drop with the fireworks and then I want music to start and I want people to dance, I want them to be with each other in grief I want them to cry if that feels appropriate, I want them to share stories, I want them to share love I want them to eat, I want them to drink I want them to dance I want them to celebrate their own lives I want them to remember that they are still alive even though I am dead I am gone. And then I want to be buried. I want a natural burial. Then I guess life will carry on. Minus me, as I know me. That is so decadent and sublime. And I think the beauty of talking about death in this way, talking about death from a place of health and planning towards that is so healing even just in the cognitive experience of doing it hearing hearing you is a healing for me even though i haven't started to plan my own process and that is really what i think is so beautiful about the human experience that we are each models for one another we can help mirror our experiences and through listening to someone else, you can be given permission, not that maybe you need permission, but you can, you can have that extra sense of support to start to dive
2: in and, and explore what, what, what this can be like. I do want to touch into something that you shared. You want, you mentioned that you want a natural
1: burial. Yeah. What does that mean? Sure. Sure. So a natural burial, or a green burial, is where the body is placed with everything biodegradable, meaning either just a shroud or a cardboard box or a pine box with no metal in it, no more than three and a half feet underground so that the earth will do with the body what it will, no concrete vaults like we have in traditional burials. And no gravestone or marker of any sort, just GPS coordinates given to my family or marked by a tree or anybody who would like to come and see where I was. Yeah, that's what I mean by a green burial or a natural burial. I want to go straight into the area where I came from, I think. <sighs> that's really, that's really beautiful and really respectful of just, again, the process of how we got here we think and and how we can leave. Can you also share how does someone who's listening to this conversation right now start to take the next steps? They're hearing everything. They're like, this is different. This is opening me up. I want to start to figure out what it looks like to, to leave. How do they begin that process? That's so rich. A lot of different entry points into the conversation around death. One important thing to do is to imagine your own, the most ideal death for yourself under these present circumstances. Understandably, that's going to kick up a lot of dust about how you're currently living. And I hope that if that is the case, that you use that as motivation to make whatever changes that you need to make in your life so that you can reach a death that you feel somewhat comfortable with also start imagining what a death for yourself right now would look like. I'd also say, if that's too big or too esoteric, that you start with the planning things that maybe for a week or so, you leave out a notepad and a pen and a piece of paper right by your computer or phone every time you enter a password in some place, even if it's done by a password manager app or it's already stored in Keychain and um, your cloud, that you write down what the password is. That's a very practical thing to start preparing for death, because once you die, somebody's going to have to deal with all of your, your computer affairs anyway. And so practically, you can just start writing down passwords. It's a small step, but it will consistently remind you of why you're doing it, which is going to bring your mortality front and center. You can also do little exercises. One of the ones I enjoy is looking in the mirror and repeating to yourself, I'm going to die three times out loud. Just looking at yourself deep, deep, deep in there. Sit in your home or the place that you currently are right now. Take a look around and see how many dying things you can spot. Just take a look around dying things around. Now, in most homes, there's plenty of things. Or look at things that are made from something that died. If you can't find something that's dying, look at things that are made from things that died. A piece of paper, some cotton, Look in your fridge, I'm sure you'll find something in there. Uh, Not in my fridge. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so funny. There's always like, to me, just the bottom of the box of spinach is always a little something dying down. Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways to begin engaging with the conversation around death. If you'd like a little bit of added support, Going with Grace has a death and uh, grace and dying meditation course that can walk you through a death meditation nine parts pretty simple and 37 bucks i think it's pretty affordable just for the opportunity to be with your death for a moment in this new phase of my life that i'm in where i do feel a lot of autonomy and ability to stretch i feel ready to think about the process more and it was really beautiful to hear you speak to it today with so much joy and exuberance and also specificity. I'm a person that thrives on specificity. I'm a granular person, for better or for worse. And I think, you know, I feel so invited now to think about
2: what color and what fabric do I want for my shroud,
1: you know? I might just live in the world of shroud. I think it's even more tangible where I can begin. And I love that you've offered up just small tender ways that you can kind of tritrate your exposure to this concept. Is it mirror work? Is it fabric selection? Is it talking to yourself? Is it orientating and locating something that's dying or deceased or just recognizing that paper was once alive? Like those are really, manageable ways to confront something that our society has done a really good job of making super scary. Yeah. When in fact, once you move past the fear, you can move into the specificity, the joy and the examination. And for those who love to plan, the A-type excitement that you can have (laughs) figuring out how you want to leave. Absolutely. Let me tell you, death has got something for everybody. The a types just, we have an end-of-life planning consultation that stems from a document that I wrote that's about 32 pages or something like that. It's got all the little boxes to check off, all the things to decide that you want to do. Sometimes I'll show up to somebody's house for one of these planning consultations, and they've got the little, little post-it small ones that you flag in different colors for different parts. They have different colored pens. I said, oh, this is a dream for you. Oh, those ones. <laughs> Erica just showed us right on the desk. They're perfect, but I love, I love sitting with those people for planning because they don't let details go unnoticed, which means that hopefully when their death comes, it's much easier on the people in their lives and their circle of support to get their stuff handled. Yeah, but it's got something for everybody. I mean, if the planning isn't your thing, there's always the esoteric, there's always the questions about what we're doing here and what, if any, meaning your life's work has had and will have. You know, no biggie. I have loved this conversation so much. Thank you so much for making the space and the time to to talk about death.
2: Thank you, Erica. Thanks for listening to my chat with Alua Arthur. You can learn more about her work at goingwithgrace.com. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.